started. Tonight we are in Ephesians, if you'd like to turn there. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we, we're going through what's called survey studies. And so we've been preaching through books of the Bible. Um, we started off spinning this. It feels a little loud. I feel like I got to reel it in a little bit. Talk with my whisper. Inside voices. Okay, so we are um, we're going through a survey study. We're using Mark Dever's. Uh, he has an Old Testament, which is called. He titles uh, "Promises Made," and then a New Testament survey, which he titles "Promises Kept." And that's the resource we're using. So a lot of what you hear tonight and things that we're going through are things from Dever's uh, study. Because no need to reinvent the wheel when a guy like that has done it uh, really, really well. And so we're going through that. We started off in Genesis, spent a few years, went to Ephesians, or Ephesians, that's where we're tonight. We went to Exodus, spent a few years, then we started moving a little more quickly, and now we're to the point where we're in the pastoral epistles, and we're really just spending one week at a time on each book right now. And so we move a little more quickly, so we got to cover a little more ground, but the point of these sermons isn't to um, dive into the depths of what Ephesians means. It's to get an overview, like sort of a bird's eye view, you know, 35,000 square, 35,000 foot sort of looking down saying, okay, what's the point here of this book? That's our goal as we're looking at these. So we're in Ephesians tonight. Let me pray and we will dive into it. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity, uh, just for this privilege to, to stop in the middle of the week, to be able to open the word, uh, to gain insight, uh, discernment, and understanding. Um, and to be closer to you. Lord, we're thankful for a word that we have with us that's breathed out by you, that's profitable uh, in every way. And I pray that we would um, uh, increase in knowledge tonight. I pray that our hearts would be affected tonight. And as we just consider the amazing grace that you have given us, as it is communicated via Paul through his letter to the Ephesians, uh, I pray that, um, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and live accordingly. We love you. We humble ourselves before you pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as it is an overview study, and the entire goal of one study is to get the main point of a book, what was the main point of Galatians? We'll figure out if I succeeded or failed last week. What was the main point of Galatians? Yes, be aware that the gospel can be easily twisted and stay true to the gospel. Fantastic. So at least one of y'all got it from last week. I feel good about that. Uh, good good uh, ratio there. Uh, but I'm going to ask this every week. So as we're going through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, be thinking each week, what was the point of that? If, someone, if I'm thinking about how to utilize my Bible and what to do, if I'm talking to someone who is, I mean, really personalize it. You know, if I'm talking to someone who is kind of twisting the gospel and trying to make it fit their own life, and trying to kind of re rewrite some of this stuff, where's a good place for me to go? Oh, I can go to Galatians, because that was the problem in the Galatian church. So, you know, personalize this. It's not just head knowledge. We're, we're aiming to, to connect this to our lives and, and other people's lives. So next week, the opening question will be, what was the main point of Ephesians? So think in that direction tonight as we move forward. There's various things in this letter to the church in Ephesus uh, that indicate that Paul was likely in prison at the time that he wrote it. And most people believe that he was imprisoned in Rome, probably around 60 AD, uh, toward the end of his life. 
So when you think about Paul, you think about everything that he's done. This letter was written probably towards the end of his life while he was literally in a Roman prison. It's not just metaphorical prison that he's talking about. It's actual you got locked up because you were talking about Jesus and you wouldn't stop. So while we're not sure of the situation at Ephesus, like a lot of the letters are what we call occasional letters where there was some occasion that was a reason that he wrote the letter to like, you know, for instance, in Rome, uh, the, the, in Romans. So this is different because we really don't completely know the situation at Ephesus. One theory is that he wrote this letter because the, the proclamation of the gospel was so incredibly um, uh, potent and, 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 um, and it accomplished so much that there were a ton of Jews and Gentiles that were finally in that church. And they were running into all the problems that you run into when you have completely different kinds of people gathering together at the table of Christ for the first time. And so while we're not sure, it produced what Dever in his book calls a lovely letter that helps us to understand better what God has done for us, what he calls us to do, what he calls us not to do, and why he's done all that. And that's going to be our outline for tonight. So the outline for tonight in this overview study in, in the book of Ephesians is what God has done, what God calls us to do, what, calls us, what God calls us not to do, and then why he has done such things. So first, what God has done. Uh, God, the, the main theme, especially in these first three chapters, is grace. What God has done is united us in grace. That's what God has done. Now remember, it's always good to look at the text and say, what does it say before we say, what does it say to us? And that's actually the approach that Paul takes. He shows us everything that God has done before he ever moves into the things that we are supposed to do. So the first thing is he's united us in grace. Dever states, if the letter to the Galatians was like a bomb, getting their attention and correcting them and righting a wrong, then the letter to the Ephesians is more like a jewel. It, it's a jewel that it extraordinarily refracts the grace of God. God's grace is seen abundantly in this letter to the Ephesians. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So as we are diving into this, we see this abundant grace of God, this work that he has done on us, something that we need outside of us that we can never accomplish for ourselves. So the first thing under the heading of what God has done and uniting us in grace, the first thing is that God elects. That's, that's number one under this section. God elects. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. One of the nice things about these pastoral epistles is we can spend more time actually reading through the text while we're here. But what we see here is that Paul makes it clear that our salvation is not a right that we possess. We live in a culture that everyone is really, 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 really focused and worried about what their rights are and they don't want their rights infringed upon. Um, It's something that was not normal to every culture that has gone before us. But what we see here is our salvation is not a right. God is not obligated to save us because he created us. So election, because of misunderstanding, um, is often a bad word to people. I mean, you might even, even if you have heard it before, you might be thinking, Scott, do you really have to start the, the Bible study with that? Like, number one, God elects. Great. Great, we offended someone, someone's upset. I want us to, what I want us to see here is that um, this needs not be minimized. Um, sometimes we, we, we mistake the, the process of uh, election as, a, as an idea of a guy named John Calvin. And um, it's sort of stereotyped and caricatured to where, um, you know, everyone's robots and we don't have any choices and God just does what he does and nothing really matters. And the result, if you believe that, is you're not going to love people and share Jesus with them. Well, Paul, if you keep reading the letter after he talks about choosing and predestining over and over again in the intro, clearly doesn't believe that. One of my favorite John Calvin quotes is, how frivolous a thing it is to boast of knowledge when love is wanting. How frivolous a thing it is to boast of knowledge when love is wanting. John Calvin said that. So I don't think even he thought that was the case when we're talking about election. Election is a privilege we're given. It's not a right. It's a privilege we're given because of God's great overflowing love for us in Christ. And we're, we're going to continue to see what the effect is. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all it's worth noting that if God is great And if God is sovereign, you will pray to him. If you believe that God is great, if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that God is doing something outside of us that we could never do for ourselves, if you believe he is granting to us that which we could never earn, then you don't, that doesn't make you idle. It makes you prayerful. It makes you uh, eager to go to him and put your hope and your faith in him for yourself and for others. God's sovereignty, in short, was never meant to be an excuse for our laziness or our lack of love and prayer for others. God's sovereignty was never meant to be an excuse for our laziness or our lack of prayer or our lack of love for other people. 
If you hear about this thing called election and you conclude that there's no point in evangelism and loving outsiders because in the end, God's just going to save whoever God wants to save anyway, then you do not understand God and you do not understand his will for your life. We have to be very careful when we talk about the sovereignty of God that it is something that is powerful, that moves us forward, not that makes us lazy or um, complacent or not worrying about people who don't know the truth. Look at 3.14. We're talking about how it pushed Paul to to pray for those who didn't have this grace that that is being so um, touted in Ephesians. And in chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 3.14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever, ever. Amen. What does Paul pray for the Ephesians? In light of the grace of God that can't be earned, in light of the grace of God that no one deserves, in light of this grace of God that goes forth so abundantly yet so specifically, what does Paul pray for for this church? What are some of the bullet points, the key points in his prayer? That they be grounded in love. What else? That Christ would dwell in their hearts? What else? Yeah, strengthen through the power of the Spirit. What else? Strength to comprehend, that they would have knowledge. Yeah, they glorify the church. All of these things are things that, that he's going to God with. He wants these things for the church, and he's eager, and it should, it should inform our prayers We can't just make assumptions about what God's going to do, and we can't just make assumptions about how little we can do. We should be, if we believe in the power of God the way that Paul is expressing here, we should be leaning forward in our prayer to God and our our lifting up others in the way that he is. At the base of Paul's message is unity of the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ. Look at Ephesians 2. Does someone want to read aloud verses 11 through 22? It's kind of a chunk. Go for it. Boldly. Therefore, remember you built together into a dwelling place of God for God by the Spirit. Well done. It was a lot of reading out loud, right? And Paul, that's like one sentence for Paul, so it even makes it more difficult to read out loud. Very Very well done. So God elects, and the second thing that God does is he unites us in grace, is he unites He elects and he unites. At the base of Paul's message is unity of the Jews and Gentiles. They must understand this unity as God's doing and not theirs. That's a theme in Ephesians, and we're going to get to it here toward the end. I'm doing doing my best not to jump to what we're supposed to do because we're just talking about what God does. But what God does is God unites us. God unites Jews and Gentiles. God unites those who are as more profoundly different than you could ever ever consider. If you think men and women are different, if you think different ethnicities that we have now 
um, how it might be odd for, for different cultures and different groups to be in the same room. Jews and Gentiles were incredibly different. God elects, God unites. Third, God is gracious. Dever has a note. He says, the unity is possible because God's grace eliminates the importance of worldly distinctions. The unity is possible because God's grace eliminates the importance of worldly distinctions. How would y'all restate that in your own words? Unity is possible because God's grace eliminates worldly distinctions. What does that mean, plan language? Level playing field? Yeah, takes the mask off. Individualism and pride in our culture may not be the main objective for the Christian. Sometimes you open the toolbox and you have to use the hammer. That was one of those times. I'm sorry. I, I love you. I'm glad, you're, I'm, glad it, I'm glad you remember it. Yeah, God, God unites and God is gracious because he, he separates these worldly distinctions. So sometimes we, we're hesitant to even have a conversation with someone just because we're worried that maybe they're not like us or they don't think like us or they won't, they won't be you know, welcoming or we can't be welcoming. And we, we have all these ridiculous hindrances that get in the way. And one of the things that God does is in his grace, he eliminates um, the importance of worldly distinctions. I mean, the wealthiest man in the world could walk in this room and he's just going to be a part of this Bible study. We're all here on, on level ground. Um, this is, uh, in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile. We realize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross all of us have rebelled against God, and we were pleased to do so. That's part of the leveling, is you might, you know, on one hand you can think, well, all of us have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and you can think in terms of the treasure of grace, and that's appropriate. But the other part of that that we have to think about, the reason that there's no worldly distinctions, is that we're all wicked. We're all sinners. We have all willfully rebelled against our Creator, and as we willfully belt against our Creator, we did it in a manner that it was, we, we approved of it. That's every human being. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and through sin, death entered the world. So every offspring after that has the same problem of going against our Creator. We've been talking about it in Romans 1. God is gracious. Dever says, when we understand, this was a different perspective. I like the way you put it. When we understand that we are all depraved, that we're all dead spiritually, that we're all in debt to God and bereft before him, a strange, helpless unity comes over us. So he was kind of, he's coming at it from the angle of like, well, yeah, we have this celebratory unity of we're all saved, but before that, we have sort of a, a sobering, helpless unity that says we're all sinners, we're all unclean. We all don't have a sacrifice great enough that we could give on our own to be welcomed by God, to have access to God, to bridge the gap between us and God. He says a helpless unity comes over us. Therefore, it is not surprising when the world's most familiar barriers to unity 
are brought down in churches that are not focused on bringing them down, but are focused instead on teaching the gospel faithful and clearly. I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to ask what this means to you in your own words. It's not surprising when the world's most familiar barriers to unity are brought down in churches that are not focused on bringing down bringing them down, but are focused instead on teaching the gospel faithfully and clearly. What does that mean to you? In your own words. Yes. When the gospel becomes the main thing, other things become less of a thing. What else? How else would you state that? Yeah, because it's God's grace that does that. That's the, the reminder there is that something that I've been humbled in this year is I'm, I've been looking at Romans and I'm looking at spiritual gifts and some different things is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not my presentation of it, not my understanding of it, but the gospel itself is, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so, what are some of the barriers? You mentioned racial barriers. Those are some barriers that we could have in church. Racial barriers. What else? Age, Age barriers. Okay, what else? Class. Class. Music, choice Music choice barriers. Politics. What'd you say? Marital status. Marital status. What else? Yeah, people interpret... Yeah, people interpret things differently. So different beliefs within the same faith. Romans 14 talks about that. What else? I mean, those are the obvious ones. Are there not more subtle ones? Parenting styles. Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Public school or homeschool. <laughs> vaccination, non-vaccination. <laughs> I'm going to shut this down. Y'all quit talking. We're not, we're not going any further. The, that, that's where we're like, where, where's the gospel taking root and doing things? It's in those kinds of things. Those barriers come down when we faithfully teach and preach the gospel and aim to walk in it, aim to be hearers of the word and doers also. And so all of these things that can make us different and drive a wedge between us, it's, it's the, the central focus of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation that eliminates those things. Well, I mean, as we've already encouraged, leaning forward in 2017, inviting people, befriending people that you wouldn't normally be friends with, befriending people, like that, that should mean then that the gospel creates people who befriend people who aren't exactly like them, right? It means that we go out of our way to befriend people that are different. Like we don't just look for people that look and talk and think and have the same political views and the same school views and the same vaccination views as us. We should be more diverse than that. Don't aim to be diverse just for the sake of being diverse. Focus on the gospel and the diversity will be there. But it, but it does inform our movement. And I would even say, if we believe that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, that also means that Crosspoint Fellowship should be a church that as we lean forward in 2017, we're a church of people who make some effort to befriend non-believers. How else will the gospel go forward if there are not feet that take it? 
And so tons of opportunity, is we, our eyes kind of open to the opportunities around us when we begin to consider the power of the gospel and the extensive grace of God through it as you read books like Ephesians. The gospel is the power of God. So God elects, God unites, God is gracious, and God gives faith. God gives faith. Don't be too quick to jump to, I have to be faithful. God gives faith. Look at I'm going to look at just a few verses. You actually don't have to turn there. I just want to read them real quick. 1.9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. 3.1-6 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been made known, been revealed now to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then at the end, 619 says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly pro- to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What's the repeated theme in all the verses I just read? Mystery. That has everything to do with your faith. The word mystery, when it's used in the New Testament, does not refer to a problem that's difficult to understand like a puzzle. My daughter has these big floor puzzles, and sometimes they're difficult for me to understand because it's a picture of a princess that's like five feet by five feet, and they're difficult to understand, and it takes me a little longer to do it sometimes than other times. Some days I'm on my game, some days I'm off, because it's a little mysterious. The mystery of the gospel is not like the mystery of a puzzle. It's not something that is just sometimes difficult to understand. It refers to something impossible to understand. That's the mystery of the gospel. The mystery, when it's spoken of in the New Testament, is something that is impossible to understand we never would have come up with it on our own. It, I mean, you, we heard that, was it last? Yeah, it was last week. Sorry. It's all running together. Um, we heard that with Paul, right? They're saying, well, you're just trying to gain a following. And he was like, this isn't my idea. This gospel wasn't my idea. Do you think this is the way to gain a following? I was a Jew of Jews. I was exceeding in the Jewish class, and I'm young. I was doing really well. If I wanted to gain a following, I would have stayed on that course. But instead, I went the course of the gospel. And so the mystery of the gospel is this thing that we never would have come up with. It's not our idea. God had to reveal it because we could never even come close to considering and understanding any part of that mystery that exists in Christ without God giving us faith. So he gives us faith. So finally, what must we do? That's what God does. So just to be clear, God elects, God unites, God is gracious. God gives faith. So what do we do? You live out our unity. That's verses chapters 4 through 6. So chapters 1 through 3 is this thing that God does in grace, in in uniting people, and changing hearts, changing lives, and changing you into people who care about the hearts and lives of other people. So what do we do with that? Live out the unity. Brad Cardwell has preached one of the best sermons I've ever heard on Ephesians 4, And if you have any extra time, I encourage you to go listen to it. 
ever since he preached it, it stuck with me. But what we're, we'll get to that in a minute. But Paul makes a shift from the indicatives to the imperatives. The indicatives, this is what God has done. You have to understand what God has done before you start figuring out what you're supposed to do. But those are the imperatives, what we do. Look at 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Raise your hand if you grew up in a Baptist church. There's not as much diversity in this room as I was hoping. So if you grew up in a Baptist church, I, I did, and I used to read this. And, think, and I thought it laughable because I knew how the deacon meetings went. I was a kid that was paying attention to my dad at deacon meetings. And I read this and I just kind of thought it was laughable because with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that wasn't what I was used to hearing. It was almost like whoever yells the loudest wins sometimes. It goes on to say, there is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we live out our unity, and the first thing that we're going to see in these next couple verses is um, live a life worthy of your calling. Live a life worthy of your calling. According to these verses that I just read, what might that life look like? Living at peace with others? Using your life to glorify God? Can't, these things can't happen unless you're seeking Christ. What else? There's more there. Love well. Love well. What does that look like? Generosity, Generosity humility, patience, fruits of the Spirit. Yes, yes, this is all connected. You all see the full, full circle here. Yeah, what we're seeing here is if you are in constant turmoil with someone, if you're in constant differences that are unnecessary, unnecessary quarrels, um, if there's constantly friction, if there's constantly a lack of patience, if there's constantly always beef with someone somewhere about something, whatever it might be, which that even count, like Facebook counts, like this, this counts. You're not living a life worthy of your calling when we live like that. When we're known by something other than our love for each other, we're not living the life that's worthy of the calling on our lives because we're called to build others up. In 4.17, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, do in the futility of their minds. What is futility? If you're here Sunday, what does that mean? In the futility of their minds. If it's futile, it what? Stupid. Yes. Incapable of productiveness. 
useless for the forwarding of the kingdom. Gosh, I just want to give you all a big hug. That was good. You got it all. All the parts were right there. So, so don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Yet remember, the purpose of the gospel is uniting Jew and Gentile. So part of it is calling something out when it's wrong. He just said the Gentiles in large part are walking in the futility of their minds. Probably half of the room would have been like, hey, I can hear you. Like, think about that. Imagine if this was Gentiles and this was Jews, and I was like, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This side of the room would be like, oh, we're here, we can hear you. But, but, but Paul doesn't pull these punches. He's not being harsh, he's being truthful. And he says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. So there's a hardness of heart that exists throughout with the Gentiles, but the amazing work of the gospel is that it doesn't have to stay that way. It's the same hardness of heart the Jews had too. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. There's a note. Anger provides a foothold for the devil in the Christian's life, whereby he starts to use the Christian as a staging ground for bringing harm into the lives of others. If you have anger that you haven't dealt with, you need to know that that's something that's going on. That foothold of the devil is, is, is a picture of Anger providing a foothold for the devil in the Christian's life, whereby he starts to use the Christian as a staging ground for bringing harm to the lives of others. It's not a neutral, small thing to do nothing about your anger because we're called to build others up. And that anger is going to get in the way of that. 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. So any people in the church that were thieves, he's saying, stop. It's better that you should labor so you have something to share with others. So stop stealing, start working, earn something, and share it with others. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And this right here is one of the hardest verses to me that I've ever read. It just, it, I talk a lot. And this verse scares me. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We have a really high standard for our words. No corrupting talk. So you've got to consider it's not corrupted talk. It means that your words have an impact on others. And if they're not the right kinds of words that are building them up, they have a corrupting effect on others. I-N-G, your words can be corrupting others. So it doesn't say just be careful with that. It doesn't say try to reel that in a little bit. It says put it to death. The standard for God on us regarding the words that come out of our mouth, let zero, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as, as is fitting to an occasion because your words can give grace 
to those who hear them. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We may have no time like the present to really make a mark on people if we're really known by the love we have for one another. Because the culture that we live in, we are all so aware of how terrible people can be to other people, right? We, you turn on the news, most of it is, this person was terrible to this person in this way. Officer in Little Elm got shot last night, just doing his job, guy shoots a rifle through a window. People can be terrible to other people. I've installed security systems in houses and commercial residences since I was, um, well, too young to legally do it. And so I've been doing it for many, many years. Over two decades, I've seen it. And people can be terrible to other people. People can treat other people like garbage. The church doesn't do that. We're kind. We're tenderhearted. We're forgiving. We don't hold grudges. We don't hold records of wrongs. We don't go to sleep with anger that hasn't been dealt with. We work it out. It is worth it because we have this opportunity to be known and to be seen and for people to say, hey, that's different. And some people will be like, you know what? I want to know why that's different. Why are these people taking care of each other? And if someone has a need, everyone just meets it. Why are these people careful with their words and not loose with their words? And people are drawn to that. That's that whole salty, bright, and aromatic thing. And I just think in our culture, when you see how terrible... I mean, there's, there's television shows that are dedicated to people treating other people like garbage. And we call it entertainment. And we let our kids sit and watch that stuff. And it's not okay. We should care about that. That suppresses the truth. That draws the wrath of God. We're about truth going forward. And we can do that. The forward movement of truth is intensely relational. That's what we're seeing here. The forward movement of truth is intensely relational. Anger provides a foothold, but we should be careful with our words. The third thing, so what do we do? We live a life worthy of our calling. We build others up. The third thing is we make the most of every opportunity. Christians should care about the opportunities and how we handle them. Again, God's sovereignty was never meant to be an excuse for your laziness. It's the same way in other areas that we've already talked about, but this is a new area. It says in 5.15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Living wisely means making the most of every opportunity. Christians are the kind of people that are supposed to strike while the iron's hot. We're supposed to be, have a sense of entrepreneurialism to at least some extent in the things that we do. We should seek out opportunities and make the most of them. The reality is God provides opportunities for us relationally. Uh, we have opportunities to, to serve in ways for the gospel to go forward. And what, what Scripture says is, you know, God's done all this stuff and giving you grace and uniting you. What you do is when he provides the opportunity, make the most of it. Some of us need a kick in the pants. Some of us need to confess the sin of being lazy. I struggle with it in my life. I'm very, very busy, but I can also be very lazy. If, if I'm not making the most of opportunities that are right in front of me, it's a sign of spiritual laziness. Make the most of the opportunities. Live, living wisely like Christians are supposed to live in light of the grace of God means you strike while iron's hot. You do your absolute best with what's in front of you. 17 says, therefore do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He talks about submitting to one another, and then he goes on to talk about how wives submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Love your children together. Raise them in the fear and discipline of the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger. People who are at work, work hard for your boss. Don't don't be lazy. Again, make the most of every opportunity. This is seen largely in all the different relationships that we have. Everything I just mentioned, husband-wife, Parent-child, stranger to stranger, worker to boss, the forward movement of truth, the forward movement of the kingdom of God is intensely relational. We should pay attention to those relationships and make the absolute most of every opportunity. The fourth thing in what we have to do is stand to the end. Paul closes his letter with the exhortation. Listen to 6, 10 through 14. So here's four verses here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the themes of the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand and to, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belts of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Stand to the end. Paul closes his letter with this exhortation four times that I may stand, that you may stand, that we may stand. He says it over and over in the closing exhortation. According to these verses, what must we have to be able to stand firm to the end? Boldness? The armor of God. What is the armor of God? All that stuff I just said. It's a great answer. Yeah, the, the point is, it's, it's not just like a metaphor we teach to our kids to try to be prepared for you know, the unexpected. We're talking about devil fighting. We're talking about demon slaying. I mean, who does it say that our, our fight is against? The devil? What are the other words used there? Principalities? The evil one? Cosmic powers? Flesh and blood. A lot of times we're not ready with the gospel because we think we have a better handle on what we're facing than we actually do. A lot of times we're in situations where we think, oh, I know, I got this. I'm prepared. I know what to do. I know what to say. 
But as a Christian, sometimes you're facing things. I mean, when I say, or when, when this verse says, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Like, can you pinpoint that for me? Like, can you put, put a mark on that and be like, oh, yeah, that's this. That is very complex. That is very um, sobering. It's supposed to be. That's why we have to put on the full armor of God. We can't just, it's, it's having this, really what that produces is, is what um, some have referred to as a wartime mentality. Where it's like, we got to put on the armor every day. We can't just assume that we know what's going to happen, assume that we know who we're engaging, assume that we know what the conversation is really about. Sometimes there's a lot at stake. I I recently was in an ethics class, and um, uh, uh, what's the guy, the the ethics guy that everyone knows? Russell Moore. Russell Moore was the main speaker, and he got up and he said, ethics is, and you're expecting, okay, I'm going to get a definition, and then he's going to build the definition for an hour. That's how the lectures go. And he said, ethics is about devil fighting and demon slaying, fighting against darkness and the powers that you don't even almost understand. I was like, okay, you got my attention. Because sometimes we take things too lightly. You know, he, he goes on to say ethics is defining uh, normal in a completely abnormal world. Why is it abnormal? Because of all the darkness, all the evil, all the sin, and all the death. And so... Um, we, we have this call to stand firm, and we can't stand firm without the whole armor of God. And we have to be mindful as we have that armor on. I mean, if you, if you have, if you're going to battle, you're not going to be sort of willy-nilly, loosey-goosey about your armor, right? You're not going to forget your sword. You're not going to, oh, brain fart, I didn't put my helmet on. You're going to be mindful of it, and you're going to move forward accordingly as a warrior, the last thing that we must do is rest in God's sovereignty. 6, 18 through 20. We just read it. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. We see this picture of resting in the sovereignty of God. And you can consider Paul's situation. He's saying, pray that I'll, pray that I'll be bold. You're an old man in prison because you've been proclaiming the gospel. Like, I think if I was in that situation... I'd probably not think that. I'd probably be like, why don't y'all pray that you're as bold as I am? I'm in jail because I've been sharing the gospel, and I'm old. <laughs> like, Paul is old and in jail for sharing the gospel, and he says to pray, to pray for boldness. He's resting to the end in God's sovereignty. So the last thing here is what must we not do? There's some things we have to do, but Paul's actually really emphatic about one thing that we cannot do. Look at 513. Look at, start in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You can hear Romans 1 all over this. Therefore, do not become 
partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What we must not do is partner with darkness. He's emphatic about it. He's not saying as you're doing all these things, be careful because there's some darkness out there. He says, do not partner with darkness. Expose darkness. A congregation should never seek unity and diversity if it means tolerance for something that God hates. We don't create a more diverse church by being tolerant about something that God despises. Remember the wrath of God that we've talked about on Sunday mornings towards unrighteousness and, and ungodliness because that suppresses the truth? It's personal because we are, our idolatry is personal. We don't just tiptoe off into it on accident. It's personal because we are willfully rebellion, rebelling against our Creator. The church never seeks diversity by being more tolerant for greed, impurity, impropriety, or any form of, form of immorality. That doesn't mean that we impose unrealistic standards on people who don't know the gospel. But it means we don't make friends with the darkness. What we do with the darkness is befriend it with light, is a way to think about it. I'm going to take light there. I'm going to drag that into light. Why? Because I love you. If you're in darkness and you're continually perpetuating that cycle of darkness, I love you so much I'm going to drag that into the light rather than saying, it's okay, whatever makes you happy. That's foolishness. We're going to be talking more about that on Sunday. It's called a life given over to lust and it comes in a jillion forms. But here we cannot partner with darkness. So many differences should be accepted in the church. So many differences should be accepted in the church, but darkness is never one of them. Paul is actually promoting vigorous disunity in such a case. Rather, we expose darkness to the light, which means you have to call darkness darkness. You can't expose darkness to the light if you call it something other than what it is. You can't put sin to death if you call sin something other than what it is. If you try to rename it, repackage it, we, we repackage it in all kinds of ways. There's a whole list that we could go down right now. It might embarrass some of us because we're, we're living in it. But hopefully we're convicted as we see this. You have to call darkness darkness to be able to expose darkness to light. So finally, why has God done all this? Well, in Ephesians, it's interesting. In Ephesians, we probably have more clarity on God's ultimate purpose for creation than any book of the Bible. I'm sitting here, I'm like, whoa, I'm in Romans 1. I don't know, man. Romans 1's a pretty good, pretty good go on Sunday mornings for, for God's plan and his purpose in creation. But really, this book maybe more than any other, shows God's ultimate purpose for creation. This is the only letter where Paul talks more about the universal church than the local church. It's interesting. It's more of a bird's eye view. The only letter that he's written where he talks more about the universal church than the local church. In short, you go back to 1.9, and you see, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. 
God has created the world for his own good pleasure, for his own purpose. He seeks the praise of his people. Why do he do it? Because he wants us to praise him. He seeks the praise of his people because there's nothing more fitting than his people praising him for what he's done. His purpose is showing his grace, which I think has been made obvious tonight, as we've just read the text, and for displaying his wisdom to all of creation. In 3.20 it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory in the church and to God be the glory in Christ forevermore. Dever closes his section on this where he says, We are placed on this planet to be walking pictures of the moral nature and the righteous character of God. The whole reason you are here, the whole reason you have a borrowed breath, the whole reason that we get to wake up in the morning, the whole reason that we have mercies that are new every morning, the entire reason is that we'd be walking pictures of the moral nature and the righteous character of God. People should be able to look at you and see what your God is like. That's, that's the way to think about that. People should be able to look at you, look at your life, look at your relationships, look at how you treat people, look at how you spend your money, look at where you use your time, look at the words that come out of your mouth, and be able to see what God is like. Reflecting him for the universe to see and redounding forever to his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the book of Ephesians. We're thankful for the abundant grace that we walk in. And my prayer is tonight as we've considered these things that we do, that we will aim to do those in light of what you have done. That we will aim to walk in the unity rather than think we can create it. That we will trust you with the details that are your details. And that we will lean forward with people and love people properly. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First question next week is going to be what was Ephesians about.